Hello everyone and welcome to the final instalment of the Trous and Hamlin's Night Frank podcast series. Uh, today we're once again going to be talking about some myths in the UK commercial real estate market and particularly those myths which we see confusing our golf clients again and again. This podcast is part two of the Mythbusters series and you can find part one on our website and on Night Frank's website if you missed it. My name is Nick Green and I'm a corporate and real estate capital markets partner in the Dubai office, focusing on assisting golf clients looking to invest back into the UK and wider Europe. To help me bust today's myths, I have once again with me here today two experts in the field, independent real estate consultant and seasoned UK investor from the Gulf, Basam Kameshki, formerly of Ibdar Bank, and head of London Commercial Research at Knight Frank, Faisal Birani. Thank you, gentlemen, both for joining today. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. And with that said, maybe let's get straight into it, shall we, and dive straight into myth four, which is the only way to get exposure to the UK commercial real estate market is to buy a building by oneself or uh, together with other investors. Maybe to mix things up a bit, why don't we go to you first, Basam, for your thoughts on this from a Gulf investor's perspective? Yes, so investors have been investing in the UK for a very long time, actually, Nick. If we would categorize investors in the Gulf, sophisticated investors who would either be investing by themselves in the UK, have their own family offices either here or there, or those investors that have been investing through investment banks or funds being marketed in the region. The other type of investors who are not sophisticated investors who just started to explore different ways of a traditional investment, whether buying REIT shares, whether buying into an open-ended fund that are widely marketed here in the region. What I'm trying to say here, investing in real estate and in particular in the UK goes beyond buying a building by yourself or with your partners. There are lots of structures that we have seen recently being offered to investors with different risk profile. So uh, we have mentioned earlier, buying, uh, directly acquiring an existing building in the UK is one, one form of it, if I may say so. Other way is to invest into a fund that is operating on a certain investment criteria, but bankers have been very innovative recently and investment managers indeed by offering alternative investment products such as debt investment, forward funding, forward purchases, etc. So investors now have so many options to invest in the UK market, whether it's a REIT, a fund, direct acquisition, or innovative banking products. But the question is, what is the risk appetite and the investment criteria of those investors in order to determine what is the right product for them? Would the investors prefer getting into more direct deals on their own in order to have more control and high, uh, more governance, for example, into their deals? Or would they be happy to invest into small shares into within a wider fund in a passive position just for them to enjoy clipping the return without having a day-to-day control on those transactions. And what about the alternative or what might be described as alternative routes? For example, buying into commercial developers in the UK or at least entering into joint venture partners with 
those types of uh, entities in the UK, so either developers or, as you say, asset managers. Do you do you see that as being a, a route into the market that Gulf investors are, are likely to come around to, or is it still a bit early at, at this stage? What are your what are your thoughts on that? See, a property development has been the backbone of so many in GCC investors here in the GCC. However, when investing overseas, having the development risk, and especially if the investors are investing directly by themselves without having the right infrastructure would make so many of those investors nervous. But again, uh, like I said earlier, investing alongside the right technical development management partners, uh, conducting the right DD and underwriting on those deals definitely will mitigate the concern that those investors might have when investing into development overseas. However, I, I, I would find it very important to mention that for those investors looking for a purely IRR and capital appreciation returns, whether it's in central London or outside central London, like we said, or like what we said earlier in the regional markets such as the big six or big ten, development opportunities or development investments is definitely one of the ways to achieve a double digit IRR. But I repeat myself, you have to have the right technical development management partner to work alongside you or have the right infrastructure on the ground in, in the UK market in order to manage your development and mitigate such development risk. Okay, excellent. So um, it, it's certainly popping up on Gulf investors' radars in that case. As you say, it, it is it's very much uh, it's a different mindset, development uh, over investment, and it, it is a step out of the norm for some more traditional Gulf investors. And I don't want to leave you out on this, Faisal, as well. So I don't know if you had any additional thoughts. Uh, obviously, Sam's outlined that there are multiple ways in, into the market, uh, REITs being one of them. Um, but it is just a bit more of a broader play than just buying a building, isn't it? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, what, one of the one of the key challenges in accessing uh, London's office investment market historically has been a lack of stock. Um, I mean, if we go back to the start of the year to, to pre-COVID, we we had about two point three billion pounds worth of stock um, available to purchase, um, and our global capital tracker showed us that there was um, just over fifty billion pounds of capital waiting around the world to be deployed in London's office market, which sort of gives you an idea of the of the disparity between supply and demand. And we know, you know, as Bassam talked about in the last episode, that the London market um, is a well-trodden path for investors from the Gulf. They know this market inside out. Um, however, uh, of, of late, their, their share in this market in terms of overall activity has, has diminished um, with investors from greater China, which includes Hong Kong, uh, becoming far more active um, along with investors um, from Europe. Um, and as, as Bassam said, there are a, a wide variety of routes to gain, you know, for, for want of a better term, almost instant exposure to the commercial sector. We saw um, Thomas Lau, uh, a billionaire from from Hong Kong, for example, uh, purchasing about fifty million pounds worth of uh, worth of shares in in Landsec earlier this year to to give him a stake of about one point two five percent. 
Um, and that means that without having purchased a, a physical asset, uh, this investor instantly was given exposure to a whole range of assets um, at a time when perhaps there wasn't uh, very much in the way of options to purchase. However, Given the the easing of the global travel restrictions, we've seen transaction volumes start to rise. We've seen uh, the amount of property um, on the market starting to rise. Um, in fact, at the moment, we've got about £8.4 billion uh, pounds worth of offices available to purchase, excluding things that are under offer, uh, which means uh, we've, we've now got about 60% more stock than we did at this time last year. Um, and this is the second highest level of, of opportunities available in the market since 2015. Um, so for investors who previously were priced out um, or were unable to find options, now is a really good time to, to enter the market. And as we talked about before, you know, looking at trophy assets is has has often been a, an easy way for investors to get into this market because it reduces the initial capex at least. Um, however, this is a sophisticated market and we are seeing other investor groups outside of the Middle East um, accessing it in, in different ways. Uh, but Middle East investors um, are, are, yet to, are yet to explore some of these options that are available to them. Just picking up on, on one point you made there about uh, Asian investors supplanting Middle East capital in London and the wider UK. Why, why do you think that is? Do you think there's, there's anything behind uh, the behaviour? Is it more aggressive in investment horizons for Asian investors? Do they just uh, move quicker? Do, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's probably a combination of all of those things. You know, London is a traditional global safe haven. Um, and as uh, as we talked about before, COVID-19 is hampering global economic growth. Um, and in such times, investors do turn uh, to locations that are perceived to be safe havens. Um, and in addition to that, you've got office yields in London standing anywhere between three and a half to four and a half percent for prime offices, uh, which outperforms uh, office yields in most other major global gateway cities. And indeed, those those returns are better than most other asset classes. I mean, your, your UK 10-year gilts uh, these days are, are sitting at below 0.3%, for instance. And in many other jurisdictions around the world, uh, bond yields are, are in fact negative, uh, which helps to strengthen the, the attractiveness of, of London's market. And if we you know, look back to the very raw fundamentals of our market in terms of supply and demand, there simply isn't enough office space being built to keep up with demand. 56% of everything under construction is already pre-let. And with COVID-19, construction delays are inevitable. And it's quite likely that, that the supply-demand dynamic will persist. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about the war for talent last time, and businesses remaining increasingly focused on the quality of the asset and perhaps less so on the geography, uh, sort of suggesting that that the rental performance or the rental returns available for best-in-class grade A offices um, has quite a positive future ahead. Well, that's uh, great to know. And it sounds like the market is well underpinned, actually, if nothing else, by the, the construction pipeline or, or lack of construction pipeline, which you've briefly discussed there. So that's good news for us. 
I think in terms of uh, the next myth, which I'd like to go on to, this is definitely one of my favorites for golf investors. The myth is that the classic mindset of 8% cash on cash returns is easily available from the UK market without going too far or too significantly up the risk curve. Again, I think it would be good to start with your thoughts on this one, Basam, as a seasoned golf investor. What are you seeing when talking to other investors in the market? Are you seeing this mindset shift? So the background of this, Nick, is investors in the Gulf have been spoiled and overwhelmed with, in the last years with the products investment opportunities that are delivering a yield in the range of 75 to 8%. We have said earlier that with increased number of investment volumes from the Far East investors and European investors within the UK market have definitely drawn negative downward pressure on net initial yield. So my message is here, to the message that I would like to pass to the GCC investors that the days of 7 and 8% are gone. We have a, a funny joke between ourselves as investment advisors that 7 is the new 8. Gulf investors have to realize what used to be 8 is 7 nowadays. You've got high competition from a new camera investors that would require less return on the same assets that we used to enjoy the 8% of. GCC investors have to adopt into the strategy and a process to close deals faster. One more advice to GCC investors is to stop just looking at the returns of your investments at the bottom line of your cash flows and start looking in more in-depth into your property fundamentals. The market is changing, competition is high. Other investors would require on the same property lower yields, meaning they would be paying, they would be ready to pay higher price just to win a good property. Plus, I would like to draw the attention here as well to GCC investors that the classic days of holding your investments between three to five years are gone. In order to maintain good yields, you will have to adopt into extending your holding period from three to five to five to seven, uh, if not even eight. The, 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 a typical example of that, Nick, is looking at, for example, the, the one of the most popular investment uh, themes that GCC investors have been extensively investing in is the single lease properties. I buy a new property, for example, that has a brand new 10 years lease. I stick to my five years holding period. Why on earth I would sell during the end of year five with five years remaining for the same price that I bought the property for or even higher? Unless the market or the sub-market for that particular location booms, there is no more reason. But on the contrary, if I kept holding the property towards year eight or nine till one year remaining on the lease, and enough time for me to negotiate as an investor re-gearing the lease with the tenant or replacing the tenant with a fresh lease, I don't see a reason why investors should stick to the three to five years holding period. 
So to recap here, the investors have to adapt to the new 8%, which is the 7%. Consider extending your holding period depending on your investment profile from three to five to five to seven, and definitely look beyond the returns and focus on the property fundamentals and how to underwrite your deal sincerely. And Faisal, um, how do you think the market has changed in this regard over the, the time that you've been tracking it? Obviously, sectors come in and out of favour over time, beds and sheds being the latest eyeing or one of them. But what do you think Gulf investors should be looking for realistically at the moment? And yeah, how, how has the market changed? Um, I think, you know, coming to um, the issue of of Brexit, for instance, um, I think that there has been a a longstanding perception that that would dent investment volumes. What's interesting is that we've we've actually been been tracking the impact on the market for some time. And if you were to look at active requirements for, for office space at the moment, you'll find that about half of it is being driven by the professional services and finance and banking sectors. And in fact, looking forward at employment growth projections, those two sectors are expected to add the most number of new jobs to London's economy in the city of London and, and Westminster over the next five years, for instance. Um, so it's quite clear that occupier groups in those sectors are taking a much longer term view and, and looking beyond beyond COVID. Um, what's interesting is that perhaps in the past, um, investors have been more focused on geography um, in London. Um, however, with, with the pandemic, um, unsurprisingly, we're seeing greater scrutiny of, of underlying covenant um, strengths as well. But that said, uh, whenever trophy assets do come to market um, in locations that are perceived to be prestigious, um, you know they, they are they are often sold well above asking price and often often sell extremely quickly. Um, an example of that would would be BP's uh, HQ in in Mayfair, um, which came to market, I believe, at about 180 million pounds, but ended up, ended up selling for for 250 million pounds. Um, and this despite BP declaring its intention to withdraw from the asset uh, in, in about two years time. So I think in, in terms of a, of a mindset, this the, the London office market is maturing um, and investors from around the world are aware of, of the changing dynamics. Uh, lease lengths are shortening. Uh, yields are, are lower than perhaps investors from the Middle East are, are accustomed to, but they are stable and more attractive than many other places in the world. Um, and I think in, in terms of keeping an eye on on, on trends, we, we talked about this a little bit last time, but issues around building resilience um, is important, uh, especially when it comes to the green credentials of those buildings. And, you know, if, if we're talking about ESG, it isn't necessarily all about green credentials. Uh, we must also think about the experience of the users within these buildings. In, in the wake of COVID and given the fact that the, the UK population continues to age, uh, having on-site amenities such as healthcare facilities is going to become increasingly important. And as the war for talent issue is expected to persist, having on-site educational facilities will also become important. So, so investors need to perhaps think about how they improve the experience of the users of that space 
And by providing such amenities on site, not necessarily view it as a loss of net leasable area, but view it as a way by which they will enable the underlying occupiers to succeed and grow. Because at the end of the day, partnerships between occupiers and landlords or investors is, is what is paramount and what will, uh, what will trump any crisis. Absolutely. And uh, we, we're certainly seeing that in, in the market at the moment. There's, there's definitely a shift that I'm seeing uh, from the classic landlord-tenant relationship, whereby uh, it, was, it was really one way to a, a more partnership model, whereby both market players need to work together so that they get their requirements met. We've seen it uh, particularly for landlords who've been struggling perhaps to service bank debt thanks to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and whilst being given some support by their banks, um, now that, that support is beginning to, to wear a little thin and the, the need for a genuine partnership and honest conversations between landlords and tenants working together um, so that the, the rent is paid, the rent is paid on time, etc., um, means that there's a sustainable future for uh, the, the landlord-tenant market because if uh, if these two types of businesses don't work together going forwards, then I think there's going to be real real problems ahead. Absolutely, yeah, precisely. I mean, the, you know that that is that is such an important point. Um, it's a win-win for both sides. We had an example last year of a of a technology occupier taking space in the West End. Um, and the, the space they took um, was was let for a record high rent in that submarket, um, and that was achieved um, by working in partnership with the developer during the construction of the of the building to give that occupier the space that they needed, they believed uh, they required in order to succeed by attracting and retaining the right staff. And, and in return, the, the landlord was able to secure uh, a longer than average lease length and also a rental premium. Um, so at the end of the day, both, both sides benefited from that. But in the wake of COVID, as, as you said, with, with businesses perhaps uh, finding it difficult to, to pay their rents on time or pay all of their rents on time, the partnership concept extends to beyond that and making sure that there is that open dialogue between landlord and occupier is absolutely critical right now. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you both for your, your thoughts on that one. I think because time is against us again, let's move on to the final section where, where I plan to take a, a slightly different approach. Uh, rather than busting uh, any further myths, although there's plenty more out there and maybe we should do a, another series of podcasts on them, uh, let's get to some more practical advice for potential investors uh, and particularly Gulf investors looking at the UK at the moment. What should they be doing? I think maybe, Basam, over to you to start on this one. Yes, Nick. So uh, the advices that I have for Gulf investors is, number one, do not try to work alone and to, to just to achieve cost-cutting on your due diligence. Underwrite your deal sincerely in-house, but at the same time, Always invest alongside what we call uh, what we call a GPLP structure. So having an investment manager slash asset manager on the ground that would underwrite your deal in the right manner, sincerely, definitely would do 
so much, much more the diligence that what you would do. That's number one. Number two, do not underestimate the advices from your lawyers. If you have to have, for example, a double layer offshore structure for some tax protection, just do it. Don't think at it as it's a cost. That's, that, that would be number two, Nick. And I would more and more emphasize on focus on the building fundamentals. That's very important. Faisal have just mentioned earlier that lease lengths have been reduced in the UK or in the market, such as London. It's not about location and how long is the lease. Is why am I investing in such location? What would happen if I lose my tenant during my holding period? Is the building purpose fit or it's a speculative development? What are the potentiality having the building or vacant position that it could go to the market as is or could I rent it after that? So you can't achieve that by yourself. You need the right technical partner to work alongside you to achieve your business plan. And definitely negotiate your loan agreement well with your banks. We have seen so many landlords deferring some rents or uh, providing rent relief programs with their tenants in order to have a genuine landlord-tenant relationship. So that part definitely should be part of your underwriting slash financial model, which should be reflected somewhere with your loan agreement to accommodate for such scenario moving forward. I can't think about more four points important to that level for GCC investors trying to do their business while they're here overseas. Absolutely. And I, I think that it's incredibly important to, to realize that um, when you're looking to invest these days, um, you have to look at it through the eyes of some other parties to the transaction. Your bank, for example, it always makes uh, very sound financial sense to put debt into your financial model when you're investing in the UK because of the uh, the tax advantages of doing so. But if you're going to bring a, a bank on board to a, a new investment in the UK at the moment, then you know, they're going to be interested in all sorts of things. Uh, in particular, of course, they're going to be looking at the covenant strength of the tenant going forward, particularly because of uh, COVID-19. It's fresh in their minds at, at the moment. Um, but I think that's a a, a more fundamental shift in the market anyway. I think banks will be looking at different things going uh, forward that they might not have looked at in the past. And certainly with the lease lengths, Faisal, you're talking about shortening um, the institutional lease lengths coming down. And maybe you can talk uh, a little bit uh, to us about turnover rent leases and, and maybe some, some shifts there and what, what your thoughts are there. But Look at it through the eyes of your bank as to what they're going to be willing to lend on. So, Faisal, on that note, what, what are your sort of general thoughts in this area? What can Gulf investors do? What should they be thinking about um, when they're, they're looking at uh, investing at the moment? What areas should they be uh, looking at, do you think? And do you agree with my point about the, the banks and the covenant strength of the tenant? 
yes, absolutely. I think the the covenant strength issue is is extremely important. Um, I think on the, on the point of of shortening leases, um, that that is something that that we saw. You know, we have been seeing, I should say, for for over ten years now, where lease average lease lengths are declining. Um, in the wake of the pandemic, occupiers are looking for increased flexibility on lease terms. We talked last time about uh, diminished um, uh, leasing volumes in this market, but at the same time, we have seen a rising number of regears. And what that means is we're seeing businesses um, asking for shorter leases, which perhaps suggests that demand might be being deferred rather than being eliminated altogether uh, until we are, we are clear of the pandemic. And when, when it comes to shortening lease lengths and, and increased flexibility, I think there's there's a number of things to think about. One's obviously shorter lease lengths. Uh, two, two perhaps uh, shorter shorter break break terms or, or more favorable break terms, increased rent free periods. Um, and as Basam said, working uh, working with the tenant or the occupier to make sure that, you know, as as a landlord or an investor, you understand exactly what it is that keeps that business up at night, and help them overcome those issues. And if you are a, a landlord of scale or have a significant portfolio, I think thinking about the entire life cycle of that business is quite important. Um, for instance, we know during times of economic crises, there is a rise in the number of startup businesses and entrepreneurs uh, trying to go it on their own. And at the outset, these businesses need small amounts of space and they need space that is that is classed as, as plug and play. Uh, I'll exaggerate for, for effect, but they want to carry out a viewing on a, on a Friday and, and they want to move in on the Monday. Um, so making sure that the space you are putting out into the market is is not only fully fitted out, but comes with services and amenities on top of that, will help to accelerate the speed at which that space is let. And it will also um, more than likely uh, help you achieve a, a rental premium. But growing that business from a startup with, with two or three desks into a business that occupies in excess of 10, 20, 50,000 square feet in five years is, is probably a mindset that many investors ought to start thinking about. Um, because working with your occupier, as I say, through its growth life cycle is, is something that's quite important and, and again, underpins this issue of, of having a true partnership um, with the businesses in your, in, in, that, that occupy your asset. Okay, excellent. Well, um, I'm sure we could uh, go on all day, uh, gentlemen. And uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to wind it up there, much as I am loath to leave it there. So thank you both very much, Bassam and Faisal, for your thoughts on these myths. Hopefully, we'll be uh, coming back to Series 2 at some point. But uh, until then, um, I hope our listeners have picked up some useful pointers. And it just remains me to thank you both. Thank you very much, Nick.